Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain, and today's guest is film editor Tina Hirsch. Miss Hirsch has edited such films as Gremlins, Death Race 2000, and Mystery Date. Mystery Date will be shown November 16, 2013, at the Downtown Public Library at 2 p.m. More later, now on to the interview. What does a film editor do? An editor evaluates the footage a director shoots selects the appropriate material, and puts that material together to tell a story, that story described in the script in the best possible way. For instance, let's say that one of the scenes is that of a man and woman who used to date, meeting in a restaurant for the first time in many years. The man is already there when the woman enters. It's a fairly simple dialogue scene. The director would probably have created a shot of the woman entering the restaurant and being met by a hostess and another shot of them going to the table where the man is waiting, a couple of angles of the table for a waiter to come up and take their order, wide and medium over-the-shoulder shots of both of the characters and close-ups of each of them. The editor starts to cut the scene. There might be two takes of the woman entering, and that's the editor's first choice in terms of what shall I use, which one is better. The same with the next set of shots of walking to the table and the woman sitting across from the man. And after that, it becomes more complex. The scene is about these two people meeting after a long time. The editor would probably choose to open with the wide over-the-shoulder shots for two reasons. One is that it's traditional to start a scene in a new location in wider shots to show what the space is like. The other would be to show that this meeting is a little awkward and being wide makes it possible to see their body language, all the physical movements that show their discomfort. At a certain point, the scene will become a little more personal or intense, and in that point, the editor would choose to go in closer and then later, closer still, when it becomes more emotional. In addition to the size of the camera image, the editor is looking for the best performances of a moment. They may take a word or a phrase from one take and replace it in the mouth of the character in another to make the performance stronger. Most actors really don't know how much influence an editor has in crafting their performance. And also... With today's technology, the editor is more and more frequently changing the shot, meaning blowing it up. For instance, if you have a medium-wide shot and you want a single close-up of an actor, you can actually do that. Or shots that are static, you can push in on to create suspense or to focus on something in the frame that you want to focus on. The scope of what an editor does has really changed in that sense, dramatically since digital. In an audio commentary, you stated, I've never been to film school, and how did you get your training to become a film editor? Well, I trained on the job. Somebody I knew was working at a trailer company in New York, and I begged the owner of the company to allow me to work there for nothing. And, you know, they, didn't, they hadn't invented internships back then. And he told me he couldn't possibly hire me because he'd just laid off five people. So I kept telling him I didn't want any money. 
that I would be very happy to work there for free just to learn. Well, that went on for um, about 15 minutes, and in the end, he just gave in and said, okay. So first I learned how to splice and, and thread a moviola, which is the ancient editing machine that goes back to the teens. Then I found out there was an editor from L.A. who was working down the hall, and I thought, wow, that's where I'm going to really learn how to do this stuff. So I was really lucky that his assistant was happy to teach me all she knew, and I was able to do her work for a little while while she explored New York, a uh, win-win situation. You got your start at Roger Corman's New World Pictures, and I've read Mr. Corman would sit a director down before they directed their movie and give them advice. Did Roger Corman ever give you advice before you edited a movie? Not before, but later, you know, when the film was put together and we'd screen it, he'd have changes. And the truth is, every one of his suggestions was spot on. He really has a great eye and a great sense of timing. How does a film editor get a job? And since we're showing Mystery Date, could you use that as an example? Well, Mystery Date was kind of unusual. The director actually wanted somebody else, but the studio wasn't comfortable with his choice and gave him the names of some people they'd like to work with. So we had a nice interview over a holiday weekend, and then I flew up to Vancouver the next Monday, three weeks into production. So I was basically three weeks behind from the beginning. First-time directors frequently have extensive interviews because they don't know, let's say they don't know any specific editors. Frequently, directors form relationships with their editors that last for years. Then again, sometimes an editor isn't available for a director, and in that case, the editor might recommend someone they respect and believe will work well with the director. So there are a lot of different ways to get a job. I've always considered Mystery Date an overlooked film, and how do you feel about it? Well, I I agree, and it it might have had to do with the release schedule. Sometimes a, a really good movie just gets released at the wrong time, and that might have had something to do with it. I also, while I was working on it, I didn't really like it that much. Basically, I think starting three weeks late might have had something to do with it. I would run cut scenes with the director on Sunday, and he would give me notes, and I would also jot down my notes, which were plentiful. I was unsatisfied with the way it played, but I didn't have time to fix anything. I was trying hard to get up to camera, and the producer was anxious to have the first cut screening according to the original schedule. So the screening was set for a week after we returned to L.A., which meant that I was going to be two weeks behind. But anyway, I sort of I caught up, and I sat in the theater dreading what we were about to see because I hadn't had time to look at the film and make sure there weren't any terrible mistakes. The lights went down, the curtain opened, and there was this gorgeous opening shot I sat and I watched this wonderful film. I'm amazed to this day about Oliver Wood's cinematography. Most of that film takes place at night, you know, in exterior locations, and he really was able to make it look great. When the screening was over, the director turned to me and asked if I'd made his changes. I said that I hadn't, nor had I made my changes. Both of us were really shocked at how well it played. I think both of us 
were not very positive about the film. <laughs> and it taught me an important lesson about the lack of objectivity both the editor and director have during production. You need to get distance from a film before you can adequately judge it. And I pretty much try to stay away from making changes during production now because of that, because you can actually make it worse. On the audio commentary in Gremlins, Joe Dante said you had a lot of footage to go through. What was the challenge of making the Gremlins look real? Well, Gremlin puppets aren't alive the way a cat or dog is because you can do all kinds of great tricks with animals, but these guys aren't alive, and that was the biggest shock for me. You just can't get natural expressions. It's difficult to get their eyes to actually react to anything. And I spent hours and hours looking at the footage both backwards and forwards because, you know, you can print. If you do an optical, you can print film backwards. Anyway, it took forever for me to get the movements or glances that showed, like, intention. The shots were silent, so seriously, to keep awake, (laughs) I used to listen to talk radio because otherwise I would just zone out. (laughs) It helped me focus. On your website, there's a cartoon of you cutting gremlins, and it looks like Joe Dante is in the background asking, need any help? No. And while cutting gremlins or any movie you work on, do you prefer to be left alone? Well, I I do prefer to do the heavy lifting alone. I get self-conscious when somebody's watching me. And it really was never a problem in the film days because no director wanted to sit around and watch you run film in that clattering moviola and then do all kinds of work on your bench that they couldn't see. And they would just give you a list of changes and then go back to their office. If you had questions, you could always call them. So I think it really worked well. But nowadays, the director sits with you while you're making changes because you can make the changes so quickly. And then it is more efficient to have them there, you know, if you want to say, well, this isn't working, so let's try something else. And and then the fact that they're there makes that much easier. They have cell phones and they take calls in your room, which can be annoying at times. (laughs) And then sometimes they just sit and watch you and and it just makes me nervous when somebody watches me doing something because I always think it's taking too long or I don't know. You've cut a lot of chase scenes, as those in Big Bad Mama, Death Race 2000, Eat My Dust, The Driver, and the movie Mystery Date could be considered one big chase. Um, Two-part questions. Are chase scenes fun to edit? Chase scenes are fun to edit, and frankly, though they're the most noticed, they're easier to cut than most dialogue scenes. And I say this even though frequently... Recently, in particular, I've noticed that they lack the wide shots that show what's actually going on in the scene overall. I complain a lot about today's action films. It's like they're all sizzle and no steak, all flashy cuts, no discernible story. So they are fun to edit, but they aren't always that good. And what do you think makes a good chase? Well, good chases are those that move the story along, also tell the story clearly, meaning you can follow the action. And again, my complaint is these days, frequently that wide shot that shows you literally what's going on and where everybody is, is missing.
You were the assistant editor on Woodstock, and when you um, edited More American Graffiti, was your prior experience on Woodstock an influence? Yes, it was. It was an influence on the Debbie Dunham story. And actually, American Graffiti followed four different characters, and there were four different styles of film. In other words, you know, there was 16-millimeter blown up to represent the Vietnam War. You know, there was wide angle. And then the Debbie Dunham story was done in multi-screen. And like you mentioned, in Woodstock, there was the use of the split screen. Uh, How do you cut split screen movies so the audience does not get lost? Well, I think the secret to split screen is to focus the dialogue track so that you see what's in sync and that's where your eyes go. So you know that's the main story or the main action of the scene and the other little screens because it's it's really, I mean, it's called split screen, but frequently it's three, four, or five different screens, you know, different sections of the frame. And actually, I did this musical number, which literally was a copy of Woodstock. And it was so much fun for me because, you know, Woodstock, I was an assistant. I didn't edit. So this was kind of my chance to do what I learned from the movie, you know, from that experience. It didn't end up in the film, but I had the fun of doing it. Well, just out of curiosity, why did it not wind up in the film? Frankly, for that cut, it, they felt it was, too, it was too hard to focus on what was happening in the scene. Uh-oh. So they dropped all, you know, they dropped the majority of the split screen. You've edited movies on, like you've mentioned, the upright movieola and digital editing. What are the pros and cons of both? Well, frankly, cutting on a movieola was a much healthier way to work. You stood most of the time and you rewound reels and you pulled film from one bin to another. It was very physical. And with digital material, we sit in a chair all day, hunched over with our shoulders up to our ears. You almost never get up. Although I have to say I was at an ACE meeting last night, and it sounds like a lot of people are preferring to stand. And they're now called sitting the new smoking. (laughs) (laughs) But cutting on a moviola was much more work. Cuts were not invisible on film. The tape at the join showed, and then it clicked as it went through the moviola or projector. You had to be pretty sure when you made a cut that it was on the right frame. With digital material, when you make a picture cut, you can add or subtract a few frames invisibly and very quickly. So you don't have to be as exact when you first cut a scene. When cutting on a moviola or a cam, the editor made about one decision a minute. The rest of the time was spent physically executing that cut. Digitally, we make from 20 to 30 decisions a minute. The work is much more intense, but it's also more fun, and it's almost like playing a video game. And I have to say, I missed the moviola because when we cut that way, we got a lot more respect. Not every producer or studio head had a moviola in their house. They didn't think of themselves as editors. It would never occur to them to walk over to your moviola and run a take when you stepped out of the room because, frankly, they couldn't do it. So I think we got a lot more respect back in those days. 
nowadays everybody has a computer, everybody has an editing program on it, and everybody thinks that they could be an editor. Some years ago, I was at a film festival, and Bud Smith was there who cut The Exorcist and To Live and Die in L.A., and he was talking about how much he misses the movie Ola because he said it took time to, like you said, to make those cuts, and he said he doubted if he cut the opening scene for The Exorcist today that they would probably move too fast. They wouldn't think about the scene. I was just, how do you feel about that statement? I totally agree with him, absolutely. And by the way, he was the editor from California that I went and worked with. Really? Back in New York. <laughs> yep, yep. I've known Bud a long, long time. Yeah, and he's a fabulous editor, and he's absolutely right. I think today, you know, studios, networks all believe that we can work so quickly that they should shorten the schedule. And that, I think, is really hurting films because the truth is, as he said, it takes a long time to judge a film. You have to see it over and over again and see it in different situations. I can't explain it, but the longer you spend, the better film you get. And um, it's just a shame that, you know, schedules are just shortening and shortening all the time. And we have so much more to do because... Today, with digital editing, we're, as I said, doing a lot of the camera work. We have to lay in sound effects. We have to score. I mean, even before we show it to the director, we have to put temp score in. And it's, it's just that much more work and less time really crafting the story, which is what our job originally was and should be. You edited Macon County Line, which became the sleeper success of 1974. Were you surprised by the success of that movie? Yeah, I, I, in a way I was, but I also was so new. You know, it was my first film, and uh, I didn't know how things work. I mean, the truth is, I like the film, so why shouldn't everybody else like it? But it really was amazing. I mean, in retrospect, it was an amazing uh, it was amazingly successful. Just to tell you a quick story, at another film festival I went to, David Gordon Green was there showing his movie Undertow, and he has a freeze frame at the very beginning, and they had this film scholar moderating, and he said, were you influenced by Goddard when you put the freeze frame in? And he said, no, Macon County line. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. So I just wanted you to know that you had an influence on it. You've had a small role in Brian De Palma's greeting that was quite humorous with Garrett Graham. Was it improvised? Uh, yes and no. Brian and Chuck, the producer and co-writer, wrote the scene. As originally written, Garrett Graham was, you know, he played a, a Kennedy assassination buff, and he wants me to blow up a picture taken on the grassy knoll to prove that Officer Tippett is Oswald's accomplice, that he's hiding behind a tree. I was supposed to answer that if he blew it up, all you'd see was the grain. I mean, the funny side story is that that literally was a studio in which I was working as a photographer's assistant, and I actually blew up those shots that, you know, are shown at the end. I told Brian that I couldn't say that line, that the movie Blow Up was all about that, I didn't feel comfortable saying it without crediting the other movie. 
So my answer became something like, you're not going to be able to see anything. I've seen blow up. I know how this turns out. You're not going to see anything but grain the size of golf balls. Years later, Pauline Kael, the movie critic for The New Yorker, quoted the line as one of Brian's great citations. <laughs> but in fact, I was the one <laughs> who cited blow up. That's the way it goes. You worked also this just with Brian De Palma on also high mom and greetings and mm-hmm. you know, was he talking about or thinking about going to the thriller genre soon after that he directed Sisters and before he was directing sort of these social comedies, was he discussing well maybe I should do a thriller or of that line? No, no, not really. I mean, the only thing that touches on that is that, um, you know, we all lived in New York at the time, and I remember having dinner over at his place at one point, and he and I were both sitting facing the window where we were watching all the activities going on in the buildings around us, (laughs) and the two other people with us were chatting. I mean, actually having conversation, <laughs> he and I were just staring at windows. So I think his voyeuristic tendencies might have been what got him into the thrillers. You didn't go to film school, but now you teach at USC. Can you talk about your job? Oh, I really love it. I'm teaching in the grad school, and the class I teach is called 508. Uh, there are five instructors in the class a producer, a director, cinematographer, editor, and sound supervisor. There are 15 students and 15 five-minute films made. So each student gets the chance to be director, producer, shoot, cut, and design the sound. It's really a wonderful course and um, a lot of work for students and really trains them for what life is going to be like in the film business. My instruction is in the AVID lab. I don't um, lecture. I don't talk about film editing in general. We go down to the lab where the editors edit, and I give suggestions on storytelling, performance, transitions, etc. I also give AVID tips that I've learned over the years. I don't know how everyone teaches it, but I think there used to be a lot more lecturing and less doing, you know. And I I think working in the lab with them is great. I wanted to ask one last question. It was just about, Mm -hmm. you've worked with Paul Bartel a lot, and I was a big fan of his early in his Mm -hmm. career. Do you have any special memories about working with Mr. Bartel? Well, I mean, Paul and I were really friends. We were all friends in New York. And he came out here before we any of us did. I remember he wanted me to cut his first film, the one he did with Gene Corman. Private Parts. Pardon me? Private Parts. Was it Private Parts? Yeah, I guess it was. Anyway, that couldn't happen for some reason. I don't remember whether it was. It probably had to do with money. So, I don't know. We were just always friends. And then he, he did Death Race at New World, and I worked with him on that. He was always so funny and just a great guy. I mean, really fun to work with and wacky. And what can I say? He's just a great guy. All righty. Well, I appreciate you doing this interview for us. And just thank you so much. Well, thank you for having an editor.
I've been trying to get an editor for the longest time, and nobody responds, so thank you for doing this for me. Oh, well, that's terrible. I mean, you know, I'm ex-president of American Cinema Editors, and our big push is to have more recognition for film editors. So I think you didn't try the right ones, and seriously, if you ever want to contact anybody, uh, you know, any editor, I know a lot of them. Oh. And uh, so please feel free to contact me, and I will make the introduction. Well, I really appreciate that. I'll, I'll well, do that. And guess what? We really appreciate it, too, because so few people know what we do, and what we do seriously over the years has become more and more important to the end product. And nobody knows that, and our pay scale certainly doesn't reflect that, and many, many things, I mean... It's amazing. I think more people in the world, you know, like outside of the business, know what editors do than people in the business. <laughs> and I'm really serious about that because we're hidden away in our private little places and they don't know. I would like to thank Tina Hirsch for taking the time to do the interview with us. Remember, come to the Nashville Public Library Saturday, November 16th at 2 p.m. to see Mystery Date. The Nashville Public Library is located downtown at 615 Church Street. Remember, the movie's free, and today's music is from the motion picture The Twilight Zone by Jerry Goldsmith.